From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. From Capitol Hill to courthouses around the country, it's been an eventful week in U.S. politics. Bloomberg Congressional Editor Megan Scully and White House and Politics Editor Mario Parker join me to review Speaker Mike Johnson's first stopgap spending vote and the latest in the 2024 Republican presidential primary. And Bloomberg legal reporter Zoe Tillman will catch us up on the 14th Amendment legal challenges taking place in several states aimed at keeping former President Donald Trump off their primary ballots. We'll also dig into Trump's ongoing legal battles in New York, Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Craig Gordon. Today on The Big Take, there's never a dull moment in U.S. politics. Megan, let's start with you. Mike Johnson is only weeks into his tenure as speaker, and he's already cleared a major legislative hurdle with a funding plan that averts a government shutdown. Tell us what's in the plan, what's covered, and what's not. Well, the important thing is that it covers the entirety of the government, and it gets us through the December holidays and into the new year. Some federal agencies would shut down January 19th if there is not another interim spending deal or a longer-term spending deal, while others like the Defense Department would shut down on Groundhog Day, which seems fitting on February 2nd. What it does not include, however, is perhaps more notable, and that is a lot of the demands from hardliners in the House for deep federal spending cuts as well as new border policies. We're not surrendering. We're fighting. But you have to be wise about choosing the fight. you got to fight the fights that you can win. And we're going to. And you're going to see this House majority stand together on our principle. And we're going to do that. Megan, the interim funding plan managed to pass with real bipartisan support just three days before the deadline. More Democrats supported it than Republicans, in fact. Who actually voted yes? Who voted against it? And how did the reaction from the Freedom Caucus differ from the last time a speaker tried this? Kevin McCarthy. It's interesting, if you look at the vote tally from this spending bill, it is nearly identical to the vote tally from the interim spending bill that got Kevin McCarthy ousted as Speaker of the House just a few weeks ago. The hardliners in the House, these ultra-conservatives, the ones who've been pushing for deep spending cuts, particularly to domestic spending accounts, something in the order of 30% to some of these accounts, are predominantly the ones who voted against this measure. Mike Johnson was, once upon a time, when he was just a member of the Republican rank and file, one of those hardliners who voted against the last interim spending bill. However, he, of course, supported this measure. And unlike with McCarthy, 
who hardliners said that they did not trust from the get-go, the ultra-conservatives are seemingly willing to give Mike Johnson the benefit of the doubt and let him get used to the job, which he's been in for just about three weeks at this point. Megan, you also mentioned the legislation leaves out some very important things, including a funding for Israel or Ukraine. What happens next on those battles? That is something that lawmakers in both chambers are trying to suss out right now. They're eager to leave town for the Thanksgiving holiday, so it is unlikely to happen funding for either Israel or for Ukraine before December. However, the House has passed its own Israel aid package, which was separate from Ukraine aid. However, that's drawn some significant backlash from Democrats due to how they wanted to go about paying for it. Democrats have also wanted to link Israel aid to Ukraine aid. Israel aid has pretty widespread bipartisan support in both chambers of Congress, whereas there is some strong opposition, particularly from ultra-conservatives in the House and a few in the Senate as well, to Ukraine aid. So that one is certainly the more uncertain of the two, $61 billion that the Biden administration requested. And Speaker Johnson has said this is something that he's going to take up. But there are members of the House Freedom Caucus who are really pushing back against that. So we're likely going to see there try to be some kind of consensus when lawmakers return later in November or early in December to wrap Ukraine funding along with some divisive border policies and border spending that Democrats are sure to resist, leaving an ugly end-of-year showdown on these matters. So, Megan, talk a little bit about Speaker Johnson's two-tiered rolling approach to the next funding deadlines. There's one on January 19th for one set of programs, February 2nd for the other. Talk about how that structure helped this bill pass, but what they're leaving for themselves to uh, come back to in the new year. This approach, which was called the laddered approach, which is the first time in all of my years covering Congress that I've heard that term. And I think a lot of us were trying to figure out what that was, certainly when the new speaker proposed it. But it essentially would have a two-stage government shutdown in which some of the funds expire on January 19th. Interestingly, January 19th is right in between the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. So it is a pretty divisive political time, pretty important political time, at least in terms of presidential politics. Several agencies would be lumped in there, including the Department of Veterans Affairs, and they would shut down as they would have on November 18th had this interim spending plan not come together. But then the Defense Department, most notably, would continue having funding until February 2nd. The Defense Department budget includes about half of all federal discretionary spending. So that is the biggest outlier out there. And it's typically the forcing function and the vehicle, as we call it, to push other spending bills across the line. Certainly, it's something that Republicans across the board tend to support and most Democrats do as well. So what we could see essentially is a government shutdown for more than half of federal agencies in mid-January and then the Pentagon and some others staying open for just a little bit longer. 
Mario, a lot of us who've been paying attention to Washington for a long time, it's pretty extraordinary to see Democrats and Republicans come together in Congress to do much of anything, let alone pass a federal spending plan. But obviously this has occurred because the Republicans among themselves can't seem to agree on how to do that. Do you think we are actually seeing potentially a new era of sort of bipartisan coordination between Democrats who want to keep the government open, Republicans who want to keep the government open, and it kind of splits off the Freedom Caucus and the more hard-right conservatives that are off to the side? You have enough votes to pass it. Speaker Johnson just proved that this week. Are we seeing something brand new here? I'm not sure I would take it that far (laughs) just yet. I think this would be more in the one-off category. We have to keep in mind the backdrop of all of this. We're about... Less than a year out from the 2024 presidential election, we've got, to Megan's point, Israel, Hamas, Ukraine, Russia. When Matt Gaetz and those members of the House ousted the Speaker, that was right before Hamas's attack on Israel, right, which brought even more of a spotlight to this circus, if you will, here in Washington among Republicans. And that fit right into the Biden White House and Democrats' plans to cast Republicans as a party unable to govern, right? So it was, A, on one hand, embarrassing. You had the world spotlight on this drama that was unfolding in the House. And then you played into Democrat narratives that this is a party that's unable to govern if you give them the keys to do so. With all of that, there was an incentive there, right, to try to get this behind them, even though the Israel-Palestine funding, Ukraine funding isn't in there. To Megan's point, the Ukraine part will be a lot more contentious, but you do get the sense that Republicans wanted to quickly kind of move on from this. They gave new Speaker Mike Johnson some of the goodwill up front to be able to pull some of this off right now. And again, just heading into the holiday season, at least for right now, it puts to bed some of the optics around a party in chaos. So, Megan, since the funding questions are now kicked to late January, what else are you watching for in the early part of 2024 beyond the spending deadlines, Israel, Ukraine? What are some of the other big issues Speaker Johnson is going to have to contend with? A possible impeachment of the United States president is certainly one thing that we will be returning to in the new year. Speaker McCarthy, during his tenure as the leader of the House, started an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. You know, the months that we were gone in the weeks, House Republicans have uncovered serious and credible allegations into President Biden's conduct. Taken together, these allegations paint a picture of a culture of corruption. There are still Republicans who are very anxious to get back to that after a fall that has been consumed by battles over spending and a three-week process to elect a new speaker. So I see that as percolating early next year. It's unclear whether they will go into a full-on impeachment of the president, but certainly election year politics will propel Republicans, particularly Joe Biden's most vocal foes on Capitol Hill, to try to dig further into the investigation into the president's finances and to actions taken by his son, Hunter, and other members of his family and leading to a potential vote on the House floor. And if the impeachment did happen, certainly trial in the U.S. Senate. After the break, a look at the 2024 GOP candidates and what the polls are telling us about a potential Trump-Biden rematch. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Mario, the 2024 primaries begin about two months from now. What are the polls telling us about the shape of the Republican fight for the presidential nomination? Well, right now, the polls are telling us that it's more of a coronation than it is a primary. And that's for ex-president Donald Trump as he wages this White House comeback bid. This election will decide whether power in America belongs to them forever or whether it belongs to you, the men and women who make this country great, who make this country run. 2024 is our final battle. He's got a wide lead in most of the primary states over the rest of the field. And we're talking about somewhere to the tune of 40 to 50 percentage points. In national polls, he also has a wide lead as well. But again, to your point, Craig, I mean, we're going to see Iowa Republicans going to the polls on January 15th. The pressure that's on former President Donald Trump is that anything short of a resounding victory essentially amounts to a moral loss. So as we talk to these voters in the Bloomberg News Morning Consult poll, what are they telling us about their views of current President Joe Biden and, uh, and Donald Trump, who's trying to get back to the White House? The poll will show for the White House just this continued frustration. Voters ask for these kitchen table issues, right? Outside of the whole MAGA movement and some of the populism and some of the language around culture wars, There was this feeling of two cars in a garage. Everybody has, you know, food on the table, jobs, manufacturing, lower cost of living, all those things. Biden sought to do that with his legislative agenda. And yet the frustration for the White House is the fact that, and it bears out in our poll, is that voters are looking at former President Donald Trump as the preferred choice, as the one that they feel most confident about handling those issues. Craig, you may recall we had Infrastructure Week every week under the White House. Biden has a running joke about that on the campaign trail. And yet he was able to get that across the finish line and voters are giving his predecessor the credit. So for former President Trump, a salesman by nature, this is something that he's willing to capitalize on on the campaign trail. So the presidential election is obviously a national election, 50 states, but it really boils down to six or seven right there in the heartland. And Mario, the Bloomberg News Morning Consult poll focused very specifically on a handful of those states. What states did we look at and what are the voters in those states telling us about the race? Yeah, we've got Arizona, Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Michigan are among the key swing states that we poll in the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll. In most of those states, I mean, cumulatively, Trump has a six-point percentage lead over President Biden. What's troubling, again, for Democrats is that's outside of the margin for error. In many of those states, Trump has a wide lead. I'm thinking Georgia and North Carolina, for example. Michigan, he's tied there. 
But again, he spent a lot of resources and time visiting Michigan, including visiting the picket line when the UAW workers were on strike against the Big Three. You've heard me say it many times. Wall Street didn't build the country. The middle class built the country. Yeah. Yeah. built the middle class. Yeah. That's a fact. That's so let's keep going. It pretends to be, at best, a tough election for President Biden. At worst... It looks like he could, at least at this point, be headed for a loss. Now, what I will add is that the White House, when you speak to them, what they say is that, hey, Obama during this time in 2012 was trailing Mitt Romney. They have time to break through with their messaging. They've got a a million-dollar ad buy that they're doing to canvas the airwaves. They're trying to coalesce support of these different constituencies and that they have time on their side. Our poll also asked about a storied name in American politics, uh, that of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who recently dropped his Democratic primary bid and decided to run as an independent. I've come here today to declare our independence from the tyranny of corruption, which robs us of affordable lives, our belief in the future, and our respect for each other. But to do that, I must first declare my own independence. Independence from the Democratic Party. What did our poll show about how voters feel about him? Does he pull votes away from Biden, from Trump equally? Mario, what did the poll find? You hit the nail on the head, Craig. That name ID has a lot of weight, particularly in a place like Michigan, where he was upwards of about 20 percent or so. This is not great news for Republicans and former President Donald Trump. You wouldn't associate him necessarily with Trump, but there's some of the stuff around COVID vaccines, et cetera, that, uh, and the skepticism and conspiracy theories there that kind of streamline with parts of the MAGA base. So in some ways, you're seeing Trump and his campaign already start light attacks on RFK Jr. As of right now, this is shaping up to be the election of the angry voter, the election of the third party candidate, the election where voters are searching for an alternative beyond the two party system. And now you've got RFK Jr., you've got Cornel West, you've got Jill Stein all jumping into the race. And those others, the Jill Steins, the Cornel West, and then we still have this looming threat from the no labels movement with soon to be retiring U.S. Senator. Joe Manchin possibly teasing a campaign or a bid there as well, which is very troubling for the White House. Mario, we talked a lot about Israel-Gaza in relation to U.S. aid, but how is that issue playing out on the campaign trail? Well, on the campaign trail, you're seeing staunch support for Israel, right? That's still, as much as our politics have changed and the Republican Party has changed, that hawkish bent still leans toward resounding support for Israel, the U.S.'s strongest partner in the Middle East. There's not a whole lot of daylight in between what the Republican candidates are arguing about in that regard. Ultimately, the support there is pretty strong. Where you see the daylight in policy, of course, as Megan said earlier, is just on the Ukraine-Russia support as well. Now, on the Democratic side, Joe Biden has a tough hill to climb here with this as well because he's taken a more traditional stance, full-throated support for Israel. But you've seen a little bit more nuance in some of his statements over the last couple of weeks including some uh, key administration officials, taking Israel Prime Minister Netanyahu a bit to task on the heavy-handed approach to the retaliatory attacks in the Gaza Strip. 
The reason being is the domestic politics are shifting quite a bit. So you're seeing Biden try to figure out a way to both keep this traditional stance in U.S. support for a key ally, but also having faced the necessity of this happening at a point where he needs to coalesce support to generate momentum, going back to those polls we mentioned, as he heads toward 2024 with all parts of the Democratic base walking in lockstep. We've talked a lot about Biden, Trump, even Robert F. Kennedy, but I want to ask Megan about another senator who recently dropped out of the race. You know, there's a joke in Washington that Every senator looks in the mirror and sees a president, while one who might have was named Tim Scott from South Carolina, who recently dropped out of the race. I have to say, I thought he might get a little more traction than he did. Why do you think he fell short? Tim Scott, I think, came across on the campaign trail as a bit wooden, and that has been essentially his demeanor on Capitol Hill. He's never been a senator who wants to stop and chat in the hallways. It's never been a senator who comes in with a tremendous personality, makes jokes, or really has ever kind of felt at home, I think, beyond the day-to-day happenings as a senator. And I think you saw that on the presidential campaign trail as well. So let's talk about the other candidate in the Republican race who's getting a lot of attention right now, and that's Nikki Haley, also from South Carolina, was the governor there. Of course, probably best known to most Americans as our U.N. ambassador under Donald Trump yes, there. I'd first like to say they're five-inch heels, and I don't wear them unless you can run in them. Um, well, we got two of you on stage. The second there, thing so. that I will say is I wear heels. They're not for a fashion statement. They're for ammunition. She is definitely seems to have edged out Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, for the number two spot, or certainly the polls would suggest that. She's even starting to take some donors away from other candidates, including, you know, some of the Tim Scott folks who are looking for a place to spend their money. Mario, tell us about Nikki Haley's appeal to Republican voters, and where do you think it goes from here? Nikki Haley, in some ways, is an outlier, right? She started off pretty low in the polls and has used that as a way to get her message out which is a little bit more toward traditional Republican values. She's not dodged the issue of abortion. She's used that in a personal way. Her stint as a U.N. ambassador, she's been able to tout some of her foreign policy bona fides and articulate that in ways that Ron DeSantis and Tim Scott haven't. She's just been really sharp with the one-liners in the heat of the moment as well just winning those moments that we have in the debate, right? Those moments against Vivek Ramaswamy, those moments against Tim Scott, and those moments against Ron DeSantis. And it's caught donors' attention. And now you're seeing them kind of line up behind her and wonder if, after eight years, this person who may finally be able to snatch the scepter from Trump and move on to a more familiar brand of republicanism may be emerging. Now, again, the caveat is that she's down about 40 points or so, but this is one of the things that's tantalizing for donors and voters alike. Thank you, Megan, and thank you, Mario. Thanks. Thank you. When we come back, a look at the latest on former President Donald Trump's legal battles. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang, 
Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The flurry of court cases involving former President Donald Trump have been top of mind this week as Trump and his family testify in New York. There has also been movement in the D.C. election interference case and a decision on timing in the Florida case involving classified documents. Here to bring us up to speed on Donald Trump's legal battles is Bloomberg legal reporter Zoe Tillman. Zoe, tell us about the origin of these 14th Amendment cases that are popping up across the country. Where are these challenges taking place? What is their basis? And what do they hope to accomplish? So the section of the 14th Amendment that we're dealing with here was adopted after the Civil War. It was part of an effort by Congress to deal with members of the Confederacy who wanted back into politics and what to do with them. And it was mostly to initially at least bar them from holding office again because of their role in an insurrection. But after the Reconstruction period, it really was dormant for a long time. And then after the January 6th attack on the Capitol... It began as a mostly academic exercise with legal scholars saying, hey, this language is still here. And if we're talking about the attack as an insurrection, are people like Donald Trump, who played a role in trying to overturn the election, inspiring the riot, are they potentially covered by this and barred from holding office again? And that has now moved in the past few months from a mostly academic conversation to one that is landing in courtrooms across the country. So there have been several dozen cases filed, many dismissed for really early procedural deficiencies, just not gone very far. But there are a handful that have made it past those early challenges. And they're essentially saying January 6th was an insurrection. This language can apply to someone like former President Donald Trump and the role that he played in allegedly inciting the riot, even if he wasn't there storming the Capitol, and that he shouldn't appear on ballots in either primary or general elections because he is constitutionally ineligible to hold office, just like if he was 20 years old and running for the presidency. They're saying it's the same thing. Trump is raising a number of defenses against this, some of which are that it can't apply to a former president, it can't apply to the presidency, wasn't an insurrection. And then if we get to the merits, his lawyers are arguing that what he did is not engaging in an insurrection, that he was engaging in political speech, political advocacy, and this is not the kind of conduct that this language, assuming it is even viable, was meant to cover. Earlier this week, a 14th Amendment case in Michigan was thrown out on the grounds that Michigan Secretary of State doesn't have the power to keep the former president off the ballot. But there are active cases in Minnesota and Colorado. Let's take them one at a time. Zoe, tell us what's happening in Minnesota. The Minnesota case was not the first one filed, but leapfrogged ahead a bit in terms of status. It was because of differences in state law across the country when it comes to elections. It was filed right away in the Minnesota Supreme Court. So they took it right to the top. And what the justices did after hearing arguments was they kind of kicked the can down the road. And they basically said, we're going to dismiss this because for the primary election, 
this is not really a substantive election contest. This is a political exercise that state election officials basically help the major parties with where they, you know, administer a primary to help them choose a nominee who will run in the general election. And that's where constitutional eligibility is a more salient issue. So it was a very short opinion after very lengthy briefing and arguments. And the justices said, but If he's the nominee and this is still a live issue as we're heading into the general election, you can come back to us and maybe we'll actually engage with these really difficult, sticky, substantive questions around the 14th Amendment. Zoe, tell us what's happening in the Colorado case. This is in a a Denver district court, state court, where we've essentially just finished a full-on trial on this issue, where the judge had rejected a lot of Trump's sort of initial procedural challenges to how this case was playing out and heard evidence and witnesses and testimony on all of these different issues that we've just been talking about. What is an insurrection? Was January 6th an insurrection? What role did he play? And was it engaging in an insurrection? And can it even apply to the president? And the judge there is poised to rule in the coming weeks, and it is expected to be the first time since Minnesota petered out, that we get some kind of substantive ruling on these issues. At that point, whoever loses can take it up to the Colorado Supreme Court, and then whoever loses there can take it to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it could move quite quickly if they're trying to get a ruling before the Secretary of State in Colorado is printing primary ballots. I think everyone has discussed in these hearings how There is a schedule that they have to deal with and an election, and everyone knows that someone might want to take this to the Supreme Court. So that's in the back of everyone's minds at this point. Well, the president and his lawyers are in a variety of other courthouses around the country right now, one right here in New York City, where his daughter, Ivanka Trump, had to take the stand a few days after the former president himself took the stand. What did we learn from Ivanka Trump's testimony, and where does that case stand right now? What she basically testified was that she was not involved in preparing a lot of the personal financial statements that are at the heart of this case, where Donald Trump is being accused of inflating his assets to get better loan terms and that that defrauded financial institutions. But she did testify about her work securing loans for the properties, some of the properties that were at issue that in some cases were based on what his personal financial net worth looked like. So it was, I think, uh, trying to walk a line, it seemed, between acknowledging the work that she did and is documented on behalf of the organization, but distancing herself from the core financial statements for Donald Trump personally that are really at issue in this case. Switching down to Washington, D.C., the special counsel Jack Smith also has a variety of court filings recently that attempt to put Trump right in the center of the uh, activities on January 6th up on Capitol Hill. Tell us where the special counsel's headed. Well, there are a couple big fights, but one of the biggest ones that's most imminent has to do with the gag order that the former president is under in D.C., where he's barred from talking about Jack Smith, the special counsel, about witnesses and their testimony and court staff. And there's going to be a big appeals court showdown over that in the next week or so. We also have Jack Smith and prosecutors pushing back on Donald Trump's many motions to get the indictment and the different counts dismissed. 
the biggest issue is, is he entitled to presidential immunity against this entire case? Prosecutors say absolutely not. But he's also lodging a number of other contests to different counts in the indictment and also accusing prosecutors of using inflammatory, irrelevant language to talk about January 6th and the riot itself that the defense says is just aimed at inflaming public opinion. And so right now there's just a flurry of papers going back and forth, both in the trial court level and also at the appeals court level on the gag order. We can finish up in Florida, where the president spends most of his time at his Mar-a-Lago estate. The judge there recently talked a little bit about the calendar. Why don't you tell us how that trial is shaping up? So that was a trial date that we had, which was May 20th, now seems very much in jeopardy. Trump's lawyers have accused prosecutors of dragging their feet on turning over evidence. They've said that the classified evidence in that case is voluminous and complex and that there have been access issues. The government has really pushed back on how the defense has described some of these issues and said that this is puffery and he's just trying to kick it down the road as much as he can. So the judge said, I'm not going to deal with the trial date yet, but she reset a number of deadlines on other issues in the case that seemed to make it all but impossible to stick with that May 20th trial. And what Donald Trump ultimately wants is to get this past November, past the general election. Whether the judge ends up doing that remains to be seen. But what she did was set a hearing for March where she said, let's talk about the trial schedule then. But given the amount of delay that she's built in, it does seem quite unlikely that they're going to stick with May 20th as a trial. And this, of course, is the case on the classified documents that uh, the president allegedly had in his possession at Mar-a-Lago. So you're covering all of these cases of the four, and we didn't talk about Fulton County, Georgia, What's the one you're paying the most attention to, the one that you think poses the most legal peril to the former president? I think that question is hard to answer. Each one rises and falls given different events. Georgia was quiet for a while. That's the state election obstruction case. And then suddenly four co-defendants of the former presidents took guilty pleas, including some of his former top campaign lawyers. And does that increase the amount of jeopardy that he faces in Georgia? issues in the D.C. case, the federal election case, things were on track. And then he argues he's entitled to total immunity and that the entire case should be put on hold until that's litigated, potentially up to the Supreme Court. So we have at different times, each case presents new twists and turns. None have unfolded on sort of a regular, normal, predictable path. Thank you so much for that, Zoe. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Sam Gebauer produced this episode. Raphael Amsili is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidron. I'm Craig Gordon. We'll be taking a break next week for Thanksgiving here in the U.S. We'll return on November 27th with new episodes. Have a great holiday.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.